0: Welcome to Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives Podcast. In Season 1, we learned about entrepreneurs and others around the world who were creating jobs and opportunities through esports. The one common theme throughout the season was that it takes money to create jobs and change lives. But let's face it, money can be hard to find, especially in some parts of the world, maybe in your part of the world. But... This season, we are going to share stories from esports entrepreneurs in emerging markets and showcase how they found funding they need to be successful. We're also going to talk to investors in Africa, Asia, India, who have invested in esports and highlight the challenges that those markets face. In addition, we're going to talk about sponsors who provide funding to teams, tournament organizers, and streamers. Join us on this journey for season two of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, aptly titled, Follow the Money. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast.
1: When it comes to esports, I am definitely not the expert. I'm more of an explorer. The goal of the podcast is to talk to esports entrepreneurs and others around the world to learn how esports can create jobs and to hopefully inspire others to do just the same. Our tagline is play games, create jobs, change lives. Now we're in season two, and we're talking with experts in investment, in sponsorship, in media rights, streaming, to show how you can generate revenue for your esports business. Because one of the things that we've learned is it takes money to create jobs. We call it the season, follow the money. Now, today I'm honored to have John Satterley from Australia. He's the CEO and co-founder at Fortress Esports. Welcome, John. Hi. Hi, Tom. How are you?
2: Great. Great.
1: Hey, I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time here. Where are you speaking to us from?
2: From Melbourne, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia.
1: Great. Great. Have you always lived in Australia?
2: I've lived here. Most of my life, I spent five years living in New York City. And that was a little interlude, but most of my life has been spent living in Melbourne. Yeah. One year (laughs) in Sydney. One year in Sydney as well, actually. Got it. Got it.
1: Yeah. Um I mean you have a really interesting background. That's one of the reasons that I really liked when Reginald found you to to invite you to come on the podcast because you have a uh, a background that also involves entertainment, even music. And we'll talk about how that can relate to esports. But yep. can you tell us just a little bit in general, uh, a little bit about your background and what got you interested in esports and gaming?
2: Yeah, uh happily. So I uh my first love and first passion in life was or is heavy metal music and since the age of about uh, 12 or 13 that was what i was obsessed with i still am and all i wanted to do when i was younger was be involved somehow in music industry somehow to help you know make music or sell sell the music that i loved or just be involved in it didn't really even know what it was just wanted to be part of that uh, i can't play any music got zero musical talent but just wanted to be involved in something I was felt very passionate about. And it so happened I did go to uni and I got a law degree and an arts degree and all these things and yet never really wanted to do any of that. All I wanted to do was I was happy just packing boxes in a warehouse in a record company back in the 90s rather than follow sort of the traditional professional careers of the things that university had outlined for me. And one thing led to another and I ended up, I was managing bands and I was, I had my own little independent record label putting out CDs back, yeah, mid nineties, early nineties. And I got an opportunity to join a record company called Roadrunner records, which was at the time, uh, the world's number one sort of heavy metal hard rock record label. So it was a dream come true. And I effectively sort of set up, uh, the Australian arm of that record company. And I was the managing director in Australia for that business for 12 and a half years. And eventually we, we had some big successes. Some of the biggest bands in the, in the sort of rock and heavy metal world were on our label. And I got picked by the, the founder of the company to move to New York City and be a general over there for uh, sort of help run the global company, which by that stage had been bought by Warner Music. So I was there for five years, sort of immersed in global music industry type, uh, affairs and learned a lot about you know, sort of opened up my perspectives at the same time or earlier, just before I went to New York, I actually completed an MBA and the idea that I, the reason I did that was because I didn't want to get trapped in just being a music industry guy. I wanted to understand more about business beyond just the confines of a, of a record industry. But nonetheless, um, went there, did my thing, Warner Music, uh, actually it was an unhappy day that a lot of us roadrunner veterans called the red wedding where warner music effectively shut the label down and about 50 people got fired all in one day so that was a lot of fun and i basically decided at that stage to come back to australia and joined a entertainment conglomerate out of australia called village roadshow which owns theme parks and cinemas and even at the time had a record label distribution it was sort of like a, a mini disney i suppose of australia and i joined them and Became the chief digital officer at Village Roadshow. So I sort of expanded my, my, my purview beyond just music industry and became more of like an entertainment industry uh, executive. Now, the thing about games is the other passionate and love that I've had or obsession since I was a teenager was heavy metal music and video games. And so the whole time I was sort of involved in the music industry, I also was obsessed with video games, and it so happened that while I was at Village Roadshow, I was kind of commissioned to come up with new business strategies in you know trying to think about digital disruption. And I knew that that, that there was something in it with video games, but and Village had no play in that space. And I wanted, well, I believe that that was the right strategic move at the time for Village to make a play into the video games industry didn't know exactly what that should be. And then around 2016, 2017, eSports became a major kind of a topic de jour, you might say, you know, where everyone was saying eSports, eSports, eSports all the time. And I didn't really know that much about eSports. I knew a fair bit about video games, but I didn't really know much that about, I didn't know that much about even the video games industry. I just knew that I liked video games and that it was a lucrative industry. But eSports seemed like a... Uh, An avenue worth pursuing because I really liked the combination of, uh, video game playing coupled with live social experiences. I love the idea of people going to a stadium to watch a live video games event, a competitive video games event. So that piqued my interest because of coming out of the music industry, you know, concerts and gigs and live being part of, you know, inherently part of the music business. I thought, well, this is great, this, this combo in the video games business of bringing those entertainment pieces together. Now, I worked there on a business model and a business case at Village for about a year and a half, and for a whole bunch of reasons, not even could take up a whole other podcast, I, um, Village Roadshow, opted not to pursue the business case that I put forward. Um, but happily for me and for everybody, that I, I left the business as a result. But I had some of the IP assigned over and I was able to then set up Fortress, my company that I co-founded, um, with a lot of the learnings and takeaways from the business uh, research that I'd done at Village to help me understand what the next steps should be in this burgeoning games industry market that we then embarked upon.
1: That's, there's, there's so much there. Yeah, it could be another podcast. One of the things I think is really interesting is you were kind of involved in the whole shift into digital. I mean, when mm-hmm. you're talking about music in the '90s, yeah, and they're talking about do, doing things at at Village Roadshow as the chief digital officer and everything. I mean, that was a time when um, you know people you know uh, people don't always understand that there was a before digital world mm-hmm. and it had certain guardrails and certain. Ways that things were done, and once digital showed up, it just kind of stirred everything up. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, one of the things I think is interesting is that the way you're kind of surfing, bet- bet- you know, between music and then into entertainment and then into esports,
2: kind of all with um,
1: with, with digital.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, the economics, of course, one of the reasons why Warner Music decided to shut Roadrunner Records down around or well, close effectively the independent part of the business and just collapse it into the parent in 2012 was because that was probably the nadir of the music industry where there was the disruption that had occurred from piracy, but there hadn't been the emergence yet of Spotify and iTunes as a viable business model. So it was the absolute trough and they couldn't see no one in 2012. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, look, Spotify is killing it now and the music industry is going gangbusters. But in 2012, it was absolutely bottoming out. And we came off for 2010 and 20. 2010 for the business had been enormous. We'd sold like just mountains of CDs, still selling truckloads of them. Um, but I think the parent company sort of figured that there was, you know, just worse things to come because no one could see that the digital revolution in music was going to, re- you know, resolve in a happy ending for the music industry. And, uh, there was a lot of layoffs and a lot of kind of rationalizing of the music industry around the mid to, you know, around 2010 and for the first, say, five years of that decade until about 2016, 2017, when it really started to kind of climb right back up to, to be going crazy now. So um, I guess for me it was always about trying to understand uh, how, how that digital disruption that was occurring could be capitalised on and trying to – for me it was not as perhaps as – strategic is that like i said at the beginning i really just wanted to do stuff that connected with what i am interested in like i just like games and music and particularly one kind of music and so i just wanted to figure out almost selfishly how do i create a business that can allow me to do stuff in an industry you know that's connected to stuff i like because the um the thing i'd learned also at village roadshow was you know, I mean, this is probably a hypocr- probably a bad thing to say, but I just don't like movies very much. And partly what I mean by that is, I loathe superhero movies. I hate Hollywood movies. I hate- I just can't get excited by blockbuster movies. So I was finding that was a bit a bit deadening. Like I just had no passion anymore for where I was because I couldn't get excited by the latest Spider Man movie or something. I didn't care about that. I couldn't get excited by. I'm not a big theme parker. I mean, I don't mind them, but I mean, I don't. I'm not a Disney weirdo who loves collecting Mickey Mouse stuff. I'm not one of those theme parks people. So I was finding it hard to kind of connect with what it was that I was supposed to be selling or promoting, and that was alien to me because since I'd been a young person, all I really wanted to do was connect my business career and my life to the things that I personally was interested in. Now, one goes as far as saying it was a. I felt like a sham or it was disingenuous, but I could feel that was starting to creep up that what am I doing here? I'm not actually connected to selling anything I'm that interested in anymore. And so it was not as calculated as riding a, di- a digital wave to, you know, future success and profits. And it was more, how do I reconnect with the things that I care about and I'm passionate about in terms of what interests me in life?
1: That, that is so good for the audience to hear. Because so many people that we talk to, the they, um, th- that have started their esports career in in any part of the world, and for many of them, it was like they were, they were working in a bank, they're working in yeah. their family business, they're working, yeah, maybe they just got out of school or something, and they were like, "I really want to do something in video in esports, video games," but I'm, yeah. I don't know how. But one of the things that we keep hearing over and over is uh, just. Just like, 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 you're describing there is to follow your passion. Yeah. Which, you know, you, you know, you hear that all the time, but, but to also be willing, at what I liked hearing you talk about was, uh, working as a
2: box boy or working as a, yeah. you know, uh, at, at a, at a, a music store because well, I clean, to- that- I clean toilets. I clean yeah, toilets but- in like for three years. I, you know, in a record store, I got up at six AM to be there by seven to clean the toilets in the office for three hours before I opened the store at 10 AM did that well,
1: for three that's, years. It's, it's, that's the kind of passion that it's like so many people in eSports have. They will do almost anything mm. to uh to be part of the industry. The other thing that I think is good for the audience to hear is how you are always looking at the industry as a whole. Because mm. it, no matter what happens, we will all look back at this time in eSports and in this will be a completely different time than it will be in five years, in 10 years. It'll be right like... It, 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 and we have no idea exactly where things are going and we could pretend mm-hmm. that we did. But it's like, so to always keep your eyes on where the industry is going. And that's true no matter where you are in the world. Hey, mm-hmm. let, let's talk about Fortress Esports because one of yeah. the things that I think is really interesting there is what you're doing at Fortress Esports. So yeah. if, if you could describe a little bit of, of what you're doing, but but to start out, what would be really interesting is we I always like to hear people's stories about how how it got started. It's like, Mm -hmm. did you get a group of people together? Was there a team? It's like, what was it that was out there that you're like, hey, no one's doing this, let's go do it.
2: Yeah, good. So it started out, like I already hinted, that I had an inkling that there was something interesting in that space when I was at Village, and I wanted to figure out how could a company, how could you do something if it wasn't involved, if you weren't able to, like, set up a AAA studio and start making more Call of Duties. No one can do that. That's... That path is taken by the Activisions and the Blizzards and no one's going to, I can't imagine unless you can find a couple of lazy billion bucks to set up a studio and do that. So, and I've got no understanding of that business. So I thought, where could you, how could you enter this industry without that sort of esoteric specialist or extremely capital intensive understanding of it, like building, creating gains effectively. I knew that was never going to be part of it. And It was a bit of a market scan, I guess, of saying, well, what, what's there and what, what's missing? And one of the things that struck me being 50, well, then I was 45, but I'm 51 now was that what was missing in games culture was what I call the spirit, the spirit of the arcades of the eighties. So when I was a teenager, in the eighties, the only way you could play video games was to leave your home and go to an arcade. Now play good video games. I'm talking about playing like shitty Pac-Man on an Atari 2400 or whatever. That was horrible. It's about playing good video games. The only way to do it was to get out of your house, catch where I lived, catch a train into the city and go to the arcades in the, in the downtown of Melbourne and hang out with your mates. And it was great. You know, you'd, you'd get good at games. You'd go to Macca's, you'd, you know, get a burger, you'd play couple of hours in an arcade you just hang out there and have an awesome afternoon with your friends all hanging out in the arcade and then get get a train go home and you know to me that was a really important part of my life when i was a teenager just going out and then when i was at university in the early 90s you know you, you i'd be with a few mates we'd do the things you do at uni i won't go into those details but we would do whatever we needed to do after study and we would then go for a walk down ligon street around the corner from melbourne uni and we would there was a whole bunch of like nefarious arcades, at the back of the pizza parlors and all that. And we'd just wander in and be playing like Twin Cobra or Double Dragon and those nineties games until four in the morning and then stagger back to the, back to our, our dorms or whatever. And we just, that was just inherently part of what I understood to be games culture. But then it, it sort of occurred to me that that is, that had been lost. Like for the, that's Gen X culture. For the millennials and Zoomers who'd grown up, especially millennials, the idea you you were at home playing video games with a headphone headset on your head, online gaming. And what's an interesting observation that I've learned more and more having set up Fortress is that for a lot of folks and anyone probably under the age of 40, when you're playing games at home, console games or PC games, you usually think of playing games with other people online and talking to them while you play. To me, funnily enough, that's anathema. I hate the idea of playing with strangers online. Now, I know that's weird. It sounds weird, but I just, it's so alien to me to have like just meet people in a lobby and just have just strangers play and talking to them. I just can't bear it. I'm not criticizing. I'm just, it's just the opposite kind of culture. I Whereas I don't. I don't get it now, but for millennials and zoomers, that's just the way they grew up and that's how they play games. My, my children, that's how they, my teenagers, you know, that's how they play games with their mates online. Now I just thought, well, how, how do you bring that 80s arcade spirit back? Like what's, this is something that I know is valuable. I had an intuition. It's a valuable experience. I could see in the esports world that people would go out, thousands of people in places like Korea and China and all that, or in Germany, whatever, go out to watch 10,000 people watching League of Legends finals. I'm like, well, clearly that's that at a bit, at that, at that scale. 10,000 people will turn up for a Dota 2 final, that's pretty cool. But I couldn't see at that more suburban city small level, where was it? Like why are these people turning up to these huge stadium esports matches, but there's not an always on, you know, place where people would go and hang out and have the same kinds of cultural social experiences around video games. And that was the moment that dawned on me like this could be the way into this industry. Knowing what I knew from Village Roadshow and the music industry about concerts and live entertainment, about theme parks and about uh, you know going to the cinema, an interesting takeaway at Village a uh, Village Roadshow was the kind of like the unspoken company motto was people will always want to go out. So you could talk. It's a bit like COVID. The horrors of COVID. People talking all day long about how good's this Zoom thing. How wonderful is it we can all work from home? Well, I think that's bullshit because I actually think that. People hate, ultimately hate being trapped at home Zooming all day. They want to be out mingling with people. They want to be social. It's a part of our DNA. So I just thought this needs to be capitalized. There needs to be a, a way forward with the business model that, that really taps that spirit. You know, well, so so you're,
1: you're, you're, you're talking about the arcades. Because you yeah. talked to Reginald in, in Ghana as an example. I mean, he's got stories just like you of, of the, the time that they would spend in the arcades, and the other thing about it is just what um what you what you're mentioning is just the the social aspect of mm-hmm. it. I mean, the That's community right. there that that was being that was being built. So, so, do you, so at at Fortress, you have um what what are all the different activities that you have? There? Yeah. I mean, you obviously well, have games, but you have uh, other yes as well.
2: So that's probably a good juncture to talk firstly about the name of our business and where oh, yeah, we're sort of yeah, – yeah, Yeah, because it's, because it's probably one of the most perhaps, uh, important takeaways for the, for, if I've got to say anything today, it's, this is really important. It's that, um, even though our company is called Fortress Esports and even though the original ideas were inspired by what I had observed in that world of esports, Fortress as a company now is actually light years away from being a sort of dedicated esports business. We're just not. We're, I mean, I say a lot to a lot of folks, we make more money with Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games than we do with esports. And so that was the biggest kind of second light bulb moment was you, you can't at least not in the environment that I'm in here in Australia, and I, so I can't speak for others around the world who are in different conditions, but in Australia, there was no business case to be made of any significance with an esports model. The only way forward with a, with a feasible business model was with what we call a games culture business. So we understand or we understood at that time and we now increasingly understand that esports is just a subset of a larger, bigger conversation around games culture. And if you think that there's, I mean, good luck if you've worked it out. I'd love to know folks who've like made a lucrative business out of a pure play esports business. There's probably a handful of companies in the world that have done that, like ESL and some of the teams. But to my thinking, certainly the way Fortress thinks about it, esports is just a small part of a bigger pie which is the games pie which can involve everything from right through from magic the gathering card game playing or role playing games through to all the ancillary things people dig like cosplay and you know pin collecting pins that have you know all the things that are part of kind of a broader games culture right through to of course hardcore esports folks who love you know, League of Legends and Fortnite and or not even Fortnite, CSGO and all the serious esports dudes, right? There's a whole pantheon of interests. And my view is, and where Fortress now positions itself, we say we're Australia's number one games culture company. And we don't really, even though our holding company, our parent company is Fortress Esports, the business, as most people understand it, the punters, the customers, Think of our company as Fortress Melbourne, which is the flagship, the flagship venue, which we can talk about in a minute, or just Fortress Australia. So our, if you go to our social channels often, you won't, you won't really see much mentioning of esports. We talk about Fortress Australia. We talk about Fortress Melbourne and we talk about soon. We'll be talking about Fortress Sydney. So the real important takeaway in terms of for, for this podcast, talking about like making, how do you make an economic model out of games and esports is that It's very, very difficult to make significant revenues from esports, at least as I, as I, as I've understood it, and we can talk a bit about why that is, as opposed to broadening your purview and saying, what's, how do I, how can I potentially extract more value by presenting a broader, a broader games offering than just this smaller, narrow band being esports?
1: So, so yeah, you invited the question there.
2: It's like, so why, yeah,
1: why is it that that esports can't support? Because yeah. a lot of times, I think people think, oh, I want an esports venue. I want to create an esports yeah, no. uh, club. I want to, you know, uh, a
2: dedicated place yeah. for
1: people to come and play with their yeah. friends and so on. Uh, uh, you, but yeah, so what what is your take on that? Uh, yeah, my
2: take this. Yeah, so a whole bunch of different angles we can come at. Pick, pick take, pick, you know, peck away at the business model. So, firstly. One of the biggest problems you got with esports is the rules are governed by the publishers and you don't have much control. If you're trying to create a business, whether it be a managed teams or in a team or prize money or whatever sponsorship, whatever you're trying to do, we'll talk about sponsorship in a minute, but if you're trying to set up an esports business, you need to know, of course, that the publishers still own all the IP. So you're kind of at their you're kind of at the mercy of whatever they decide is the new rules of engagement. And that's certainly not a criticism of them, but it's their business. It's their, it's their IP. They can do whatever they want with it. I I applaud that, but it means that you are beholden to, if they, if, 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 um, Apex, if EA said tomorrow, Apex legends, we're not allowing any more tournaments with more than $5,000 prize money or we'll sue you. They could do that. Um, you know, if you, I mean, maybe with Dota and with CSGO, when Valve are far less hands-on and they allow a lot of, you know, anyone to really do whatever they want, pretty much. But if you wanted to run a Valorant tournament and put up a million dollars prize money, you'd be hearing pretty fast from Riot Games going, what the hell are you doing? We're not, we're not, it's not allowed. So anytime you try to scale the economics of an esports play, you're going to usually have to parlay with the publisher. And you may get a good result, but you may not because it's their prerogative. It's not like football where you can set up, you could set up a league and play football and put prize money, do whatever you like. Cause football is kind of like a shared, it, the rules are shared. No one can stop, no one can sue you for kicking a ball around a park, but the publishers own their IP and can sue you if you want to, if you, if you get on their radar as doing something that's particularly lucrative, they're going to want to know, well, what's my share of this potentially? Now maybe, maybe not, but that's, you've got a high risk play there because you can't scale necessarily without having that conversation with the publisher. And you don't know how that's going to what the outcome of that conversation will be.
1: Does that impact the, the games that you select for your, for your tournaments and for what you're, you're, you're offering? Well, it does.
2: I mean, it, it does because, you know, we would, we, we wouldn't just turn around tomorrow and say, let's run a Valorant tournament because there's a lot of red tape and things you need to go through to get, approval to run so you need approvals so anytime you need approvals you need to have administration and bureaucracy and you know get every, it may not just be a blanket approval you're gonna to have to get assets approved you're gonna get you know all along the way you're gonna get approval and their timelines are going to be very different to your timelines and so and often these publishers are multi-billion dollar juggernauts that have you know just Zero concern not and again, I'm not criticizing them. It's just more the reality. it's not a critique it's just a, it's the reality of on the ground facts is that a giant US based monster publishing company making huge AAA games that make billions of bucks aren't necessarily going to be worried about, you know or have much concern for what you're doing in Portugal or you know or some suburb of Melbourne and you want to do something wherever you are in the world. You've got that as a consideration to so that anything beyond sort of you might call hobby farm business is going to potentially require you to need to have those engagements with the publishers. So that's one, it's more of a risk vulnerability that you've got to consider. The other probably more important one is the, as you, you know, the scale problem of esports is that to, to fund teams and to Have enough revenue that funds the team. So the publishers aren't putting up enough money because they don't need to, right? There's certainly not in minor markets like Australia or some of the, you know, country in the USA, probably in Germany and Korea, where the gigantic esports leagues exist, you're going to get enough economy of scale that the publishers and others will, there'll be enough of a prize pool and enough money. But in a country like Australia, our, our example is there's just not enough dough entering the ecosystem that can fund the ecosystem at the level of professionalism required to be a player on the world stage. So teams recently have folded in Australia or have merged or disappeared because they can't pay the players properly and they can't scale enough. And the other vulnerability there is if you can't get money from publishers to fund a league, then you're going to have to go looking for sponsors. And that can be a very hand-to-mouth exercise. You might get a one-year deal, it might involve a bunch of caveats and conditions. You need to be able to, you know, show the sponsor that you've, de- you know, you really have delivered value to them when in fact you're more, you should be more concerned about winning the game rather than what, how are we servicing making our sponsor, happy. making them happy? And so often there's a misalignment. So sponsorship money, certainly in Australia hasn't been really lucrative, lucrative enough. And it's not, it's because it's a burgeoning industry that hasn't consolidated. You'll see millions and millions of dollars going into Australian football or rugby league and those sort of things in Australia, but you won't see nothing like that entering esports industries. So what you've got then is you've got this quite a vulnerable business model, vulnerable to the whims of third parties that you don't control. And that's not a great business model. It's certainly not a great one when you're trying to get investment. Because anyone with cash looking to invest is going to ask you about these risks. Like, oh, yeah, so how are you going to fund the players next year? And if you say, well, we're hoping to land three sponsors, good luck with that, right? They're going to go, well, have you landed them? No, but we're hoping to. We're hoping to win prize money. Well, are you going to win? Well, I can't promise that. Okay, so that's not a – there's no guaranteed revenue there. So it's hard then to raise capital to stand up in esports uh, business, a standalone esports business. So for us, that was a that was a big revelation. We also understood that if we build an esports arena, or what we like to call a competitive games arena, like we've got in Melbourne, and we're going to be building, well, building now in Sydney, we quickly realised that there's not enough of an appetite in in the marketplace of consumers to pay, say, tickets to watch local amateur esports games. If you think as we once did, and then we course corrected pretty quickly that every week, you know, you'll sell a thousand tickets at 20 bucks a throw for people just to come and watch the local Joe's just, you know, fight out on a fortnight comp with a thousand dollars prize money. It just doesn't happen. You're lucky to get 50 people to turn up for free, even if you give them all a free hot dog and a free drink. So it's just not, it's just, you know, people will turn up in droves to watch. Grand finals or epic finals at the sort of height of global esports. So you've got a quite a um, enormous gulf between the interest people have in peak, um, elite esports at the global level that you see when you see those, you know, 20,000 people or 50,000 people in, in Poland attending some enormous Intel masters thing versus what happens at that local level, at the level of interest In just the suburban shit kickers out to play you know um an esports game semi-pro whatever it doesn't inspire the same level of passion and interest from the punters and there's an enormous golf there and so for us then it becomes esports then is more of a augmented part of our business model that's a value add to inspire community competitive game playing and less about thinking that we can turn it into a lucrative part of the business because there's some level of elite esports aspect to this we do so oh sorry we have done some things like we bought the license to blast and we run blast in australia so we have made certain plays in esports at a professional serious level and we did a beautiful job putting um, recently doing the blast oce um, qualifies for the global blast tournament so when we've when we've picked our Esports play, we go hard and we do seek to go hardcore professional and make it really elite. But there's not an always on every week. The revenues will flow from esports kind of model that we've understood. And again, that's my view. I'm sure you'll have listeners probably going, no way we've got a great one going. And that's, I, that's fantastic. I'm just p- providing a context of what we've well, seen no, in Australia.
1: That's, that's one of the great things because to be able to talk to you because you, you you've done this. And you, I mean, you've obviously put some thought into it, but yeah. you've actually, you, you, you put your money into it. I mean, you put your time into it. You, 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 you've, you, you've been down this road and that's, that's really good for people that are thinking that that's a, a road that they want to go, go, um, go down out there. So, um, when you, when you're creating your, um, what I, what I'm hearing you saying is that you, you're almost kind of, trying to stay under the radar of some of the publishers and the others you're you're, you're trying to engage with I, am i am i reading that right or
2: no 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 that's what as in we no, we we don't stay under the radar we have great relationships with all the publishers we we temper our ambitions so we don't we don't because we're not an esports organization per se we're not reliant on running say weekly major esports tournaments with tens of thousands of dollars to try to we're not trying to uh grow an elite esports program which would attract more interest from publishers we're very happy to keep it at the sort of grassroots community level with uh, at a much sort of uh modest level with modest say prize money or just no prize just prizes and that way the publishers are very happy with that and it doesn't attract any undue attention, but it's not we're, saying, we're not off the radar. We're very, very much on the radar. We have we often have them involved in helping to promote them, but we're not we're not aspiring to create a uh, an esports program that's. Our view isn't that like within five years, Fortress will be this elite Australian esports organisation that you know is like a global player that's been going toe to toe with ESL. That's right, not what right. that's not what Fortress is trying to do. We're we're much more agnostic in that we we're more like the what you might call the picks and the shovels to the miners. You know, we'll create the infrastructure. We'll create esports. Levi's. Yeah, we'll spell we'll, we'll we'll create the venues for the community to hang out in. We'll create the spaces with computers for people to practice on, and we'll even have esports arenas for more you know amateur or mid-tier tournaments but we don't aspire to having much to do with those 20,000 seat monster tournaments that happen you know twice a year in Melbourne or whatever that that's great that they happen because we make a heap of business when they happen because you know DreamHack happened in Melbourne 3 or 4 weeks ago and it was the biggest weekend we'd ever had in trade so we loved it it was a win-win for everybody
1: yes yes so um yeah, cause I, th- I thought I saw something about
2: PAX. You had some PAX events. Yeah. So PAX is happening in Melbourne, not this weekend, next weekend. And there'll be 80,000 yes. people turning up over three days to the Melbourne convention center. So it's a gigantic event.
1: 80,000.
2: 80, yeah. Over three days. And you know, um, we're a venue that's a 20 minute walk away and that PAX event closes at 6 PM each night. So where do you think, you know, Thousands and thousands of people oh, looking to kick on again. Yeah. So we're, we're expecting Fortress to be absolutely crushed in a good way. Uh, when we open and I guess it's probably time to give the listeners a, an understanding because I've talked a lot about Fortress, but I guess the, the key takeaway in terms of what our business model rides on is that we build as part of our model. We've got other things we do, but the cornerstone of our business model is that we build enormous games entertainment venues so fortress melbourne was our first one a flagship and it's two and a half thousand square meters which i don't even know what that is in feet it's about thirty thousand square feet across two levels with an esports arena and a you know it's got a giant 300 seat restaurant called the tavern that's themed with all of our own ip our own characters we created i
1: I, I always think of uh, a home depot is 50,000 square feet.
2: And yeah, we're kind of yeah.
1: so it's like it's man, enormous. a big chunk of that it's like yeah.
2: wow. It's enormous and we've got like you know a 58 pc dedicated land room. We've got an a a classic arcade. We have got two kitchens, two bars. Uh you know the arena is a th- can host 350 people. The venue's licensed 24 hours. It's a full alcohol licensed venue you know can ho- hold um obviously it's a thousand people uh, it's just got you know it's a it's a significant piece of infrastructure games entertainment infrastructure and we're building a similar one in sydney due to be opened in march next year called fortress sydney and so our model is about perhaps to add color to what i said earlier about esports our model is based on uh being able to Entertain people socially in our venues with food and drink and gameplay. And F and B, F and B is a big part of the model, so that we food we and couldn't beverage. food and beverage we couldn't we couldn't do the stuff we want to do and enter other parts of the games ecosystem if we weren't providing cash flow via these physical venues. Yeah, this is and this, this
1: is just this is just so important. Because this is exactly what, what is great for people to hear. Yeah. It's that, uh, you're setting it up in a way that there are other sources of revenue that have nothing to do with games. No, uh, or nothing to do with eSports or play or the, the, the playing of games, but it's more of the community that's there is going to be there for other things that, that can be revenue drivers. Complete. I think that's really key.
2: So we created a home for, we call it a home for gamers. It's one of our taglines and why, how that works is, you you know, referred earlier in the conversation to some of the insights and some of the things that inspired the the model. Well, it wasn't hard to see when we walked around Melbourne, Sydney, and I I actually went to places around the world to look at some of these, that the condition of, you know, land cafes, as they are sometimes referred to, was pretty dire, right? You'd you'd see these land cafes near, near student digs, you know, fluoro lit, blankets for curtains maybe a broken uh snack bar snack machine with a few snickers in there broken dirty filthy toilet sometimes not even a women's toilet and you know just just awful right and we just went if that's the state of social game playing and you know be yes the pricing might be 2 dollars an hour to rent a computer or 3 bucks an hour but that was indicative of the experience dirty greasy uh, messy keyboards, broken key, it was just horrible. And we were yes. thinking, well, you know, this is, uh, this is how that's going. And then the arcades that were around were much better, but often they were engineered for family entertainment. You know, they weren't, um, they weren't designed for more adult, uh, after hours, alcohol and food experience. So we said, how do you, how do you get all of this under the one roof and build at a level and a, at a scale that, to your point about Home Depot, is sort of like a Home Depot version of games culture. Like a we one of the ways we used to describe Fortresses, we build cathedrals for gamers. Like just this oh, that's good. Ep- that's good. Yeah, just an epic, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping walk in and have your head basically torn off like oh my you know, we have so many people every time someone comes to the fortress for the first time they're just like jesus christ how does you know how did this exist and or how did, how did who, who built this and so we sort of always wanted to have that sort of awe awe inspiring so when people come of course then they're feeling like they're just immersed in this tribute to their culture and then they spend on the food the drink and the games
1: now what I hear you what I hear you saying there is uh or what I hear coming through is your your background in entertainment it's like uh, you you know you're talking about theme parks but but just entertainment in general you want to create something that is entertaining the question yes. that I want to ask and I'm not asking you how much you're spending to create your venues there hmm. but if someone's out there looking at you know oh well, I want to create a venue you know what kinds of price ranges do people Spend, uh Have to spend to to, to create the, the ones that you're yeah. talking about the the with yeah. the with the curtains up uh, yeah but but and it's going to be completely different in different parts of the world but I think people significantly underestimate all the different mm. types of costs that are going to show up.
2: Indeed, my answer to that is it depends on your business strategy. Our business strategy is has always been that when we enter a market we would be laying. A flagship down like a like an enormous tentpole like slamming it down and going we are here this is the hub of the brand and you know we're, we're just it's just a just an explosion of the fortress brand just going warmth so because of that and building cathedrals not building cottages you can infer then that it's many millions of dollars to, to build the kinds of things you, that we're building. But we were able to raise the capital for that because the scale with which we envisage this and the, the, the additional revenue streams that this business strategy implies, which is the credibility, the permanence and the, the visibility, the optics of this and the, strength then of the ensuing revenue streams coming through just the fmb channels and all the other channels meant that the kind of folks that can stump up that kind of capital had confidence that this was a we weren't fly-by-night operators who you know were just ephemeral uh hey we've got an app who wants to invest in an app you know hey guys i got an esports app it'll be ready in two years give me give me half a million bucks we were saying we're going to build this sizable significant you know, timeless piece of uh, infrastructure in this major city of Australia that's got this, going to have this extremely powerful brand pretty quickly that's going to then be able to enter other parts of the games culture ecosystem being founded upon the permanence, credibility, and the optics of this cathedral for gamers. So that then infers that if that's your business strategy, which is ours, you're going to need to raise millions of dollars to do this. However, if your business strategy as you understand it is different and you think that in your market you could actually just have 20 computers in a and a in a little hallway with you know with a snack machine but hopefully some clean toilets and all you're hoping and two to do and is two toilets. and two toilets and you and you're just going to serve coke and you don't need a liquor license and you don't need to scale like we imagined and you don't need to create original IP and you don't need to do all that stuff if that's a market or you you could probably get away with that you know under a million dollars maybe half a million bucks um now again i don't that's australian dollars an australian mindset depending on the listener and where you are in the world you know depending on labor costs and what the standard price of doing business is it could be more it could be probably significantly less but um my view always is though that if you're going to do something certainly to create a customer experience it's just it's just a weak option to think you should just sort of not cut corners but how do i make it sort of dis you know well, you shouldn't look at making something dismal and and you shouldn't say let's let's just find a crappy let's just screw the customer get some computers turn the you know make sure that there's electricity and the internet and off we go my view would be well that's where's the passion where's the belief where's the model it's just you're just a rent you're just basically uh, a rent taker if you want to create like, a... yeah, sorry.
1: No, 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 I think that's one of the things you're saying is you could probably go into these venues and you can see which ones are done by people who, who really, who are into the culture, understand the culture. Yeah. And, and people who for whatever reason are into it for, um, for other reasons. When you're talking right. to your investors mm-hmm. and, and again, it's, it's completely different from, from your at viewpoint there hmm. from around the world. But when you're talking to investors, do they understand esports? One of the things, one of the things I was really interested to hear a couple of weeks ago or last week, we had uh, Luca Ciccone from Red Bull South Africa, and mm-hmm. he was saying one of the things in sponsorship that he has found is that now people are going in and talking to people about being a sponsor, whether it's Red Bull or whether it's someone mm-hmm. else. There's a better chance that you're talking to someone who is a gamer. He said mm-hmm. you, in years past. You, you kind of had to explain what, what the whole thing was. Mm. But now he said it's kind of this, this shift is happening in certainly in South Africa for him. Mm. So do you, do you find that, uh, when you're talking to investors, certainly at a, at a larger scale
2: that mm. they understand esports as a business
1: uh, and what you're doing as a business and how esports fits no, into it?
2: Not, not necessarily, but that's why we don't talk much about esports. <laughs> ah, that's, that's why esports, even in our investor decks, uh, don't, doesn't feature much we talk mostly about games and games culture because you know again i'll keep saying it it's just esports to me is just it's a cul-de-sac that has viability and has a business model attached to it but to me it's an addendum to a bigger business model which is games and games culture it's not it's not a business model and it's it, it to me it only becomes a lucrative business model if it can be or if it's augmenting something else and so esports when we go to investors is part of our deck but it's part of a sort of a a, a, the whole picture that we paint involves like i said before it might have we might have a page about role-playing games and dungeons and dragons and then you'll have a page about esports and then you'll have a page about um another part of the culture that we might be tapping whether it be you know board game culture and so Esports plays a role in the pantheon of games culture, but so then we don't need necessarily for that investor to uh, zone in. They might ask some good questions about esports, but we're not then scuttling the ship if that particular investor doesn't really get esports because they usually understand other things that are part of the the conversation, whether it be board games or whether it be uh, console games or whether it be. Food and drink, of course, most people, nearly everyone understands the restaurant business and hospitality. So we, or what we often talk about is just core business principles, like the power of brand and brand equity and that the things we do as a business that feed the fortress brand that then allows that brand to migrate into other parts of a business, other parts of, say, an an ecosystem like the games culture ecosystem, you know, where do we go as a business, say, in a few years, we might be able to talk about a fortress management company, let's say, you know, this is just, I'm just blue sky, but you would say, well, Fortress brand. My next
1: question is what the future looks like. So that's great. You went went into that. So,
2: yeah, you'd say, all right, well, if the Fortress brand is that powerful in the games culture uh, world, then where's the fortress agency and management company for influencers and talent? Where is the fortress? Um, I mean, people ask me a lot about, is there a fortress game? Right now that laugh, you know, we have always said, well, that from the early days, I always thought that was just a, a, a crazy idea because, you know, standing up games cost millions, but maybe there's a world where we license our characters to the company because our brand is powerful enough that someone would want to have that conversation. So um, you know these are these are the areas that we understand where's the fortress merchandise play how you know where do we go with our brand for the pins and the toys and the bobbleheads and all the things that people have talked to us and want more t-shirts and more merch uh this is all a- available to us as options as we grow the fortress brand and the fortress brand grows as we continue to deliver very good customer experiences and create these cathedrals for gamers that people tell other people about and get excited about and then we increasingly grow the physical footprint of the fortress company around the nation or hopefully one day internationally and then we bring the brand with us and that brand can then examine other aspects of the of the games culture industry and there's so many areas of that that you know you could Name any and we could say, well, yeah, why wouldn't we want to have that conversation if the brand is powerful enough to be, to be able to extract value out of that industry?
1: See, and, and I don't think you would be thinking along those lines if you had, didn't have the background in the music business and in the entertainment business that because that's the mindset there is just is, is what you're talking about is build that brand and then take yes. that brand and move it in, you know, in as many directions as you can to, um, to monetize it, which is which right. great.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, um, you can see the way esports teams have done it, right? So the biggest esports teams in the world can do everything from manage the team and the agency and all the talent and all of that stuff and then have a really nice content and production business and have merchandise and then put together tournaments and white-label tournaments. And so esports organizations have done that really nicely, the ones that have been successful. Uh, and you know, merch is the most obvious one that most people almost immediately move to is merchandise you know as soon as you set up your local cafe you're selling the branded cafe t-shirts is the most basic example of that right so you should always be looking for if you feel like your brand has got potency you should be saying well where could i do it with credibility and passion to get people who love your brand who want to just you know people when they get fall in love with your brand they just want to give you money for stuff you know they they almost we've had plenty of folks who love fortress's brand and they're just saying well what else you got what do you got what can i buy from you you know that's that's
1: interesting because i remember hearing a few months ago now people talking about different um esports teams they're selling their merchandise and they were like why are they selling it? they should be giving it away as marketing you know is a way to market. And I'm thinking, oh my God, have they not, do they mm-hmm. not pay attention to Disney and every yeah. other, you know, Marvel, DC? It's like, they don't give away squat. I mean, it, no. they, they sell that and they make it, they make it valuable so that people want to buy it. It's like, it's yeah. not a marketing device. It is, no. but, but it's, it's a revenue. I mean, the, the consumer products groups over at the studios, which, which you know yeah, better than me is just, mm. they're, they're, they're phenomenal. It's always amazing. The other thing I hear you talking about that is, I think interesting is I hear you keying off of other events. It's just, just like Pax is, is one example. Yeah. But it's like, it's like, okay, how can you take advantage of these other things that are happening in the world around mm. you that can benefit your organization? And I don't, I think a lot of people don't, uh, don't do that enough.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we, we're doing a, we do a watch party for all the big, international esports events so in our arena we have the leagues league of legends world's final coming up in, I think in a couple of weeks and we're doing a ticketed event even though it's just show being shown it's not obviously physical players in our venue we're just showing it live on the big screen but the community want to get out and be with their fellow league of legends fans and hang out in our venue right because it's a great place to watch it with other people and cheer along and have some food and drinks so We've done that quite a lot. We do those watch, those watch parties go down great. So when there's international events, we jump on them. I mean, we've had Xbox run an amazing, uh, live Xbox event that happened in I think, California and they hired Fortress out from three in the morning until seven in the morning. At, so, and we had like 300 people arrive at Fortress at three in the morning for this special oh, wow, Xbox event. Wow, wow. Yeah. So, you know, we, we're definitely always looking around for those international events that we can create a fortress version or a fortress watch party or something because, the, the you know, obviously the community for esports and gaming is global and people follow that stuff. And so when we can create an event around it, whether it be a local event like PAX or DreamHack or whether it be... Um, something significant globally then we we're all over that even um some of the publishers have done game launches and we've done live events coinciding with the with the big reveal of the game or the launch whatever that's happened in in the states we've done that and it's gone down a treat
1: now is there going to be a fortress los angeles
2: yeah i'd love that um uh, uh part of the problem with la is i can't I've always wondered where would you put it. I mean, you could sort of imagine Hollywood or West Hollywood is where I've always hung out when I've gone to LA, as a lot of tourists do. But you know, maybe there's a place like a, a shopping it, center or
1: put it put it downtown. I mean, it used to be Staples Center, but uh, Crypto dot com Center, whatever they call it.
2: Yeah, I don't know what I mean, it downtown is. downtown
1: has just become an entertainment center here in LA. It's vibrant. Yeah, it's vibrant. No one ever thought that downtown would ever be alive. No, twenty years it was horrible.
2: 20 years ago, yes. downtown was LA. Is a, is yes. a ghost town. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. And, you know, we should have all been buying real estate down there. I know. You know I wish at, at, at that time. I mean, but, uh, yeah. So, so there, there are different places. And I tell you, if I ever drive out to the West Side and take a picture of Riot and put it on, mm. on social media, I, yeah. I get the biggest reaction.
2: Oh, I've been there. I've been to the Riot Game Studio in Santa Monica. Huh? It's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. They do a great job there. And, um, you know, one of the things that Riot do really well, which is inspiration for Fortress was when I went to their studios and, um, I went to the bar or the coffee shop at their Santa Monica campus and they'd done a recreation of a, of a bar, I think, or the coffee joint from the game physically in real life. And I love that. And that was part of what inspired me when we built Fortress Melbourne to create all this kind of character sort of vibe in our tavern that made you feel like you're inside a video game.
1: No, I know we, we could, we could go on and on and I got a little respectful of, of your time here. Question that we do always ask people though, and just, just, uh, kind of quickly at the end is and completely off on another subject. Should the Olympics include, um, uh, esports in their official program?
2: Um, well, from a bias point of view, I, Australia are really, we, you know, we punch above our weight in the Olympics. And so I'd probably say no, because we don't punch above our weight necessarily in esports. So I'd say selfishly, keep it to swimming and, uh, and the things that we win heaps of gold medals in. And then I'd be, yes. I, but I, I, I understand the controversy is, you know, is video game playing a sport? Um, I, I, I don't know. My, my only, <laughs> My only queasiness is the
1: the first time time you've hesitated.
2: Yeah, it's a bit, cause I I, like, it goes to this thing that I feel a bit queasy about because the, the games aren't, all the Olympic sports pretty much are all universal sports that no one owns the ownership, no one owns the rights to the sport. And anytime now that you've got a game, something in the Olympics where it's privately owned, the rules of the game are set by a private organization or a public one, but a bit of a, a corporation. And it's not like the rules of shooting or football or any of those sports swimming. Something about that makes me hesitate. Like I'm not saying no, I'm just saying it's, it just feels odd that, you know, to have a overwatch or a, a you know, a, um, a Fortnite Olympics. You say, well, how does this, Is this enriching epic games to have that game in there? Like what, how did, it's not a neutral game. Every other sport in the Olympics is sort of a, it's kind of a, just a revenue neutral game that no one really owns. And so there's just, I don't know how they square that. And I don't know enough about it to have a full view, but that would be my main question about it is what, what do you do about the fact that the, it's, you're, you're setting a game up that's a privately held IP that people compete on.
1: Yeah. Think of, think of the, of, of the prize you are awarding them by bringing them in and giving them that recognition yeah. and that, yeah. that status out there. No, I don't think there's a, there's a, there's a, a good question either way. Uh, one of the things me, because we're always on the podcast, we're always talking about creating jobs around the world. Yeah. If the Olympics did include, um, e in some fashion, just the whole run-up, the whole qualifying aspect around the world would create an incredible, uh, number of jobs so that's um, completely separate from from venues but
2: um. true it would um, I think it'd be hard to pick a game I think it, like is it is it eSports generally or does it would it end up being you can't, obviously it wouldn't probably be counter strike because you which is the mo- one of the most arguably the most popular eSport but they're not going to have a an ma 15 you know uh, rated game probably wouldn't be appropriate so they' sort yeah, of almost we, we, need a PG or a G rated game right? Yeah, we can much say
1: that Mortal Kombat will not be included.
2: That's not gonna get it. So it'd probably end up being League of Legends or Dota or something like that. That's yeah. a bit more G rated.
1: when we were talking about activations over here at Disney, Marvel Disney, we could they would let us talk to them about cartoony violence, like an Overwatch or a mm. Fortnite. Mm. But certainly if there was something a little and we knew better than to take anything that was too violent over there. Mm. And they were, they, we, we knew that was gonna be a none starter but yeah that's that's another huge question on
2: yeah i don't know how to answer that one and and then if you pick league of legends what so yeah riot you may as well start buying shares in riot games right because there's something there that enriches a private business by picking their game as the official olympic game so how does that work
1: yes Ah, (laughs) the the other thing I, i liked about the discussion here is that you coming from an entertainment background i haven't really heard you ever mention traditional sports and how um how things should follow um uh traditional sports which which i really find um an interesting i i'm on your side coming from that background uh, cuz i think a lot of times trad- people are trying to emulate traditional sports right and and so uh which is not always i think the best model to uh to follow well, and that where I think entertainment, eSports is entertainment. So.
2: Well, the biggest problem you've got with eSports, again, to muse on eSports and some of the challenges certainly in Australia is, and I know it from my own, my son who I took to a few eSports, um, events like some Intel Masters events a year or two, two or three years ago. And, you know, he'd never seen an esports event, so he gets very excited. And it was exciting, CSGO. It's like, oh, my God, how cool is this? It's a final, global final, or It's or you know, whatever it might be. And you walk away from those sorts of events and, you, you know, your blood's pumping. You're like, oh, my God, how exciting was that? It was really good. And the next step, if you when you get home, you're like, well, okay, I got excited by that Counter-Strike event. Who do I now support? Like, what's the league? Right. If you live in England and you're, and you and you like football, yeah. English football, you're going to find a Premier League team and you'll, there's a, there's a normal or a normative process for which you will find your home in football. Like I barrack for a football team in Melbourne called North Melbourne, which is Australian rules football. And I, you know, I've they've been around since 1869. And, you know, when I was a kid in this, when I was a kid, They were very good in the 70s and I was a little kid and I just, you know, just ended up supporting them to the chagrin of my parents that didn't support them. But usually people end up uh, supporting the team that their parents raised them into or maybe the local neighbourhood has a team and you just grew up going to the, the games in the suburb or whatever, right? In esports, there's not one of the real problems, at least in Australia, is there's not a natural sort of channel or conduit to make you aware of and understand what is the official league for that game that I should then support a team in that league. And so when my son at the example was, he's like all excited about Counter-Strike. We're like, well, what do I do now? Who do I, who do I even follow? Who do I support? It's a splintered and balkanized ecosystem of different tournaments. And is it ESL and this and that? And who, who runs the league? So you've got no. There's no global league that's easily understood. Plus, esports generally, at least traditionally, has made a hash of almost deliberately making things opaque and hard for newbies because for a lot of years, there was almost a bit of a scorn around people like junior, like wet behind the ears, newcomers arriving who knew nothing of the jargon, hadn't had a clue what Discord was. It wasn't very welcoming. To help you kind of be immersed in esports, there was a very insular culture, and so it's not made itself easy as a as an industry to figure out who do I support, and maybe more a bit more now. There's these big global teams like the Manchester Uniteds of esports, these global esports teams like I guess I because we we have a lot to do with them because of our friendship and partnership with Dell with Team Liquid, so they have you know global reach, big team, they have you know, activations around the world and people say, oh, I support Team Liquid. But even then, if you said Team Liquid, well, what is it? Do you support their – What which game are you supporting that they're playing in? Do you support yes. the team? Do you support – now, then it gets granular because you're like, well, I like that guy who's in that team that plays Rocket League. But then he was there and now he got poached to this other team. Do I still support Team Liquid playing the Rocket League team or do I now move to another team because I like that guy? So because it hasn't – there's not that – deep roots in culture, it's very hard to work out who do you really support in esports and who, where does my allegiances lie? And I think that's been a major problem, bringing a lot of more mainstream, you know, I might call them normies into the, into the esports world, because it's very hard to figure out where do I go if I'm interested in this.
1: Now, and I, and I think that's one of the things that traditional sports has figured out very well. Oh, absolutely. Anywhere. The, the ultimate here in the U.S. is always uh, for American football was uh the Green Bay Packers. It's like yep. the, the people who have season tickets to Green Bay Packers, they they put them in their will. <laughs> yeah. They are handed down, literally. Yeah. And there's a guy next door and he was telling me about how, you know, there's going to be a big fight in their family because, you know, they only mm-hmm. had so many tickets. And when they there's too many oh, yeah. kids and it's just like and but there it's a whole different religion. Hey, I'm well, not the, the Melbourne, I'm-
2: the Melbourne cricket club has a 20 year, uh, hey. waiting list. So you get, if you want to be a member of the Melbourne cricket club, they'll put you on a waiting list when you're born and bob at the age of 21, 22, you might get lucky and get your, your, your membership.
1: Amazing. So it's life, hey, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to take any more of your time here because I could, I could keep, keep talking to you because there's all kinds of interesting things here. And yeah. while, well, well, there's, there's not probably many people in our audience who are looking at building the kinds of things that you're building there. Uh, There's so many good concepts that you're talking about that anyone can, can put some thought into, because I've talked to so many people who are interested in venues. but yeah. uh, When they start putting a lot of thought into them, Mm-mm. I mean, you, you you've already done that. So, Hey, I really appreciate your time talking about this here tonight. Well, it's My nice pleasure. for me. So, okay. So where can people find you online? Hey there. So where can people find you online? Uh, me
2: personally? Uh, well, I have a Oh, LinkedIn you want them project. to go to Fortress? Yeah. You could go to fortressmelbourne.com. Uh, that's, that's, in there. that's, that's our website. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do that. So, uh, no, again, thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. This is the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Season two, follow the money, play games. Create jobs, change
0: lives. Thanks for listening. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded and so you can hit the ground running on changing your eSports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, create jobs change lives. Thanks for listening.